If you have your Bibles, would you turn with me to Amos chapter 2. Amos chapter 2. It's just the next one of the minor prophets if you were still there in Joel from last week. Amos chapter 2. We'll start in verse 6. We'll reach through chapter 3, verse 2. Amos chapter 2, beginning in verse 6. It'll be on the screen as well. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. Those who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and turn aside the way of the afflicted. A man and his father go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. And in the house of their God, they drink the wine of those who have been fined. Yet it was I who destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of cedars and who was as strong as the oaks. I destroyed his fruit above and his roots beneath. And it was I who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and led you 40 years in the wilderness to possess the land of the Amorite. And I raised up some of your sons for prophets and some of your young men for Nazarites. Is it not indeed so, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? But you made the Nazarites drink wine and commanded the prophets, saying, You shall not prophesy. Behold, I will press you down in your place as a cart full of sheaves presses down. Flight shall perish from the swift, and the strong shall not retain his strength, nor shall the mighty save his life. He who handles the bow shall not stand, and he who is swift of foot shall not save himself, nor shall he who rides the horse save his life, and he who is stout of heart among the mighty shall flee away naked in that day, declares the Lord. Hear this word, that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, this morning we come and we humble ourselves before you as your people, recognizing our need for grace, recognizing our need for mercy, recognizing that everything that we have we owe unto you, that you have given us far more than we deserve and you have withheld from us that which we do deserve. And so, Father, I pray that you would renew in us a passion for the name of Jesus, that our judgment has fallen upon Christ rather than having fallen upon us. Lord, speak to us through your word and call your church out of the wilderness and into repentance and toward the land of revival. We ask these things now in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. You know, it might surprise you to recognize, or maybe not over the last few weeks, that Jesus saved some of his hardest and most difficult words for those who are within his church, but who within, from within his church dilute and distort his church. One, one uh, example is what he writes, what we read at the beginning of the, church, of, the, of, the, of the service to the church at Thyatira in Revelation chapter 2. Jesus says, but I have this against you. So we know already, these are difficult words. And these are, these are words being written to the church. This I have against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. 
I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, I will throw her onto a sick bed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That these are words that are written, spoken from Jesus to the Apostle John, written by the Apostle John for people like us that gather every single week to sing songs. They gather every single week to preach messages. They gather every single week to fellowship with one another and enjoy each other and, and to pray together. And there are words of stern warning. And they're insightful for us, I believe. That what we see in the church of Thyatira is that Jesus is not primarily and preeminently concerned with the reality that the world is worshiping false gods. That Jesus' chief concern is that his church is accepting them. Jesus' primary and preeminent concern is not that there is sexual immorality outside the church. It's that there is sexual immorality inside the church. That Jesus' preeminent concern is not that outside the church they are blown away by every wind of doctrine to and fro. But that inside the church, his people that are called by his name are blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine that comes around. That is that his primary concern is not that those outside the church live as though they don't know him. His primary concern is that those who are within the church live. As though they don't even know who he is. This is Amos' message to Israel. This is the main thrust of what Amos has. To, Amos was a unique prophet among all of the prophets. He didn't grow up in the school of prophets. He was not trained up and well-bred. He was not of a high social class. In fact, he was what we might consider a bivocational minister or a co-vocational prophet, that he was a man that was born as a peasant and into poverty. We know that because he tells us he's a shepherd. He's one of the despised people of the shepherds. He is one of the dressers of the sycamore tree. That is the, the fruit of the poor. And yet he goes out of the southern country of Judah where he lives and into the northern country of Israel. And going into the northern country for the sake of business, what he recognizes is that Israel is at a time of all-time high prosperity and all-time low morality. And it's in that moment that God begins to give him an oracle, that God begins to give him visions, that God gives him a message that he, though not raised in the school of prophets, though he, a peasant, must speak to the socially elite of Israel in the face and in spite of all of their wonderful prosperity. And it's a message that is that they do not look like the people of God. They do not look like those that have been adopted by God. They do not look like those that have been chosen by God. They do not look like they are living in accordance with the covenant. They look just like all of those that are outside the covenant. That is, the people of God look like the people who are not the people of God. They're unrecognizable to him. And I bet that we would all have to agree that that is a relevant word for us today, isn't it? That within the church, it's very common that we're indistinguishable from those that are outside the church apart from our religious activities. And so we see here how it is that we, as the church, as the people of God, as those inside the church, resemble the world that is outside the church. First, I want you to see that we live to get ahead. We live to get ahead. One day, there was a, a, a young CEO, and he approached Jesus, and he was a man that... 
had attained everything that one could attain in this life. He had all the possessions that he could want. He had all the prominence that he could stand. He had all the popularity that he needed. He, he was a man of power and of influence. And he decided that what he wanted to do was to diversify his portfolio. And so he comes to Jesus having great wealth and having great possessions. And he asks Jesus an important question. He says, Jesus, how can I have immortality? I already have all the possessions. I already have all the influence. I already have all the popularity. How is it that I can have eternal life? How can I have immortality? And Jesus begins to quote to him the Ten Commandments. And the rich CEO, he says, no, 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 no. Well, let, me, let me stop you right there. Since I was a child, you're going to be impressed, Jesus. Since I was a boy, I have kept all of those commandments. Obviously, I am immortal. And Jesus says, wait, there's one thing yet you lack. Go and sell all of your possessions, give them to the poor, and come and follow me. And the man was disappointed. And he went away sad because he had great wealth, the gospel writers tell us. That what the man wanted and what Jesus was getting to the point of is that the man wanted to keep everything that he had. He wanted to keep his life just like he wanted it. He wanted to keep his wealth just as he had it. And he just wanted to add Jesus to everything else that he had. He wanted to diversify, to complete his portfolio with the promises of Christ. That is, this young CEO didn't love Jesus. He loved what Jesus could do for him. That is, he didn't love Jesus, he loved himself. He just wanted to add Jesus to his life. When we come into the message of Amos, the message that Amos has for Israel, they're in a position just like that, except it's a bit the opposite. Here they are, they are the covenant people of God. They are the ones who have God, who know God, who are in covenant with God, who have the promises of God and the goodness of God and the assurances of God and the, and the blessings of God. They have the promised land, living there, dwelling there, in the land, flowing with milk and honey. And so what they say is, look, we already have God. We already have Yahweh. We already have all that he can provide for us. What we want is what everybody else has too. So they begin identifying their neighbors. That's, that's why in, uh, he keeps making a reference in chapter 2 where we read to the Amorites. They're wanting to be what the Amorites are too. They're wanting to add to their wealth and their prosperity in Yahweh, the God of the Amorites. And so he starts and he begins to go through in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and he names off all the neighbors of Israel. He names off Damascus and Gaza and Edom and Tyre and the Ammonites and Moab. These are the neighbors of Israel and they're the enemies of Israel. And one by one, he says, three sins they have, but four. Three sins they have, but four. Three sins they have, but four. And then when he comes to his people, the people that know him, the people that have been saved by him, the people that have been chosen by him, he comes to them, and look at what he says. Verse 6, thus says the Lord for three transgressions of Israel and for four. And the point is simple. You're supposed to be set apart. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be unlike your neighbors, except everything that I can say about Damascus, everything that I can say about Gaza, everything that I can say about Tyre, everything that I can say about Moab, I can say about you, my very own people. That is, the sin is not out there somewhere. The sin is in Israel. The sin is not outside the church. The sin is inside the church. The sexual immorality is not outside the church. The sexual immorality is inside the church. The bell worship is not outside the church. The bell worship is inside the church. But here they are trying to diversify their portfolio so that they can have more. And a major theme in the book of Amos is injustice. 
it's injustice. It's your treatment of your neighbor. It's your treatment of those like like. Amos, and, and you know God chose such a messenger for this purpose. Those who are of the lower class, those who are the lower rung, your, your response toward those who can do nothing for you. And the point is, is that you can look at how you treat other people and you can know a lot about your relationship with God. That here was Israel behaving and treating other people the way that the Moabites treat them and the way that the Gazites treat them and the way the Tyrrhenians treat them. And yet they're supposed to carry the name of Father. And we're like that. We take advantage of others so that we can get ahead. We take advantage of others so that we can get ahead. You see, among the people of God, what had happened is they had misinterpreted their adoption by him. And they had begun to believe that they had a sense of entitlement and they had an air of superiority. That because they were the covenant people of God, they deserved what everybody had. And because they were the people of God, they were better, qualitatively better, morally better. They were, they were sub, uh, of substance greater than all of their neighbors. That they were superior to their neighbors. So if their neighbors have it, how in the world could their neighbors deserve it if the Israelites don't have it, right? And that, that's how they end up with the injustice. That's how they sell the righteous. They betray their, their neighbor. This, this brings into our mind Judas and Jesus, doesn't it? Sell the righteous for silver. They betray the needy for a pair of sandals. They trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. They turn aside the way of the afflicted. That their injustice toward others, their mistreatment of others, has to do with their misunderstanding of who they are of themselves. That is, they had adopted a value of self-importance and a priority of self-indulgence. And wherever a value of self-importance finds a priority of self-indulgence, injustice is surely to come. Think about the way we treat other people. If you think about the way that we treat those that we esteem versus those whom we don't, if it is driven by self-importance and it is driven by self-indulgence, it will mean that we will treat those who we esteem, who are well-endowed, perhaps our boss, perhaps someone that, that can help connect us into a better network of friends, perhaps someone that can help us with our career ambitions, perhaps someone that can get us into the social circles that we desire, and we'll treat them well. And then you think about someone like a cashier or a child or a customer service representative or a waitress or an employee or a homeless person, and we treat them poorly. Why? Because they can't help us have any of those things. And so the reason that we treat people well and the reason that we treat people poorly are driven by the same motive, that we want to get ahead. And so if you can help me get ahead, then I will treat you well because you're a means to my end. And if you can't help me get ahead, then I will treat you poorly. Poorly because I have no accountability for you and I have no need for you. And what Amos's point is that this is how people act and this is how people treat others when they don't know God. This is how people treat others when they don't recognize that there is the Almighty, the Holy of Holies, who has condescended to live among us, who has given us what we do not deserve, has given us kindness that we could never, uh, that we could never reciprocate. And yet, it's not Damascus doing this. It's not Moab doing this. It's not, it's not Gaza doing this. It's not Tyre and Sidon doing this. It is Israel doing this. It's the church that's doing this. How are we treating others? How are we treating others? That has a lot to say. 
That has a lot to say with how we view our Lord. That has a lot to say how we understand who we are in Christ. But you see, here it is. Israel is blind to it. That's why they need a prophet. That's why we need these books of the Bible. Because we're blind to it too. So the reason that they were blind to it is that they were remarkably religious people. Remarkably religious people. In Amos chapter 4, he says that they would bring in their offerings religiously. That they would come and they would tithe every three days. Now you would think that would be enough to buy you some slack, wouldn't you? You'd think that would be enough to buy you. If any of y'all want to tithe every three days, the church doors are open. We are a house of prayer, open to the public, okay? Amos chapter 5. He says that in Amos chapter 5, that they're coming and they're observing all of their feasts and they're, they're making sure that they gather in solemn assemblies and they're, they're worshiping in sincerity and, and in truthfulness and in consistency. Amos chapter 6, he says that they sing to the Lord beautiful songs, that they sing songs, and he even compares them to the psalmist David, that they sing songs that are beautiful in the way that David sang them. And in, when you talk about the scriptures, you can't top the songs of David. No, these were people that liked to go to church. These were people that liked to gather together. These were people that liked good preaching. These were, these were people that liked their prayer circles. These were people that went to their D group. These were people that were faithful in their connection group. These were people that were dedicated. And he says, all of it amounts to you tricking yourself with religion. You see, that's what we do. We trick ourselves into believing that we're better than we are. We trick ourselves into believing that we're okay when we're really not okay. We trick and deceive ourselves into believing that we're right with God when we're really not right with God. And we do it through religious activity. If you would have went to Thyatira, we all would have been impressed by them. We would have been shocked that Jesus would have had a rebuke for the church of Thyatira. Even Jesus, before he gets to the rebuke, acknowledges their faithfulness and acknowledges that their latter works are even greater than their first works. That what he sees in them is they're going to the soup kitchens and they're caring for people and they're gathering as the church and they're, they're uh, teaching the scriptures and they're, they're maintaining their relationship with their neighbors. And he says, but, but that's the only difference. That's the only difference in you and, and Jezebel. The only difference is that you go to church and she doesn't. The only difference is is that you acknowledge my name and she doesn't. The only difference is is that you sing songs to her and you preach sermons about me and and you, you, uh, you, you pray to me and yet you go into the world and you go to your workplace and you go to your high school and you go to your college and you go into your home with your wife and your children and you treat them and act and respond in exactly the same way as all of those who worship Jezebel. You are deceiving yourselves through your religious activity. See, that's, that's how they were able to go. It says in verse 7, it says, A man and his father go into the same girl. The picture is a, a father and a son on their way to the altar of God, stopping by the temple of Baal, and both of them visiting the same temple prostitute. That his holy name is profane. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments that have been taken and pledged. Garments that have been received through oppression. Garments that have been received as a result of injustice. This is how they were able to go into the house of God and drink the wine of those who had been fined. The high interest rates they were charging to their brother, which was against and in violation of God's law. That they're able to keep going to the altar, and they're able to keep going to the church, and they're able to keep gathering in the temple, and they're able to keep making these offerings because what they're ultimately doing is they're baptizing their hypocrisy in religious activity and baptizing their religious hypocrisy in religious language. In fact, 
In fact, what they're actually doing is they're seeking to re-engineer the faith altogether. They're seeking to refashion what God has taught and what the law of God has said so that now it is in alignment with popular culture. So that now it can accept all of the, the, the uh, treatments and the, the acknowledgments of the gods of their neighbor. He's, 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 they're bringing in and they're making that which was once an abomination to God acceptable to God. And they're making that which was once a sin against God, a, 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 a belonging to God. They're, they're taking that which was the false worship of the other gods and they're saying that now our faith can integrate them too and they're, they're synchronizing all of the religions in alignment with popular culture. And what they've actually done, what they've actually done is they've refashioned God himself so that God is not the Almighty. God is not Yahweh who had made a covenant and delivered them from Egypt. Yahweh looks just like them. They've made a God in their own image who will sign off on whatever it is they want to do and go wherever they want to go and be whoever they want to be and have whatever opinion they want to hold and, and uh, hold to whatever doctrine they want to change. And, and he's a God that is open to evolving and changing and modernizing and progressing with the times. That is who they ultimately end up worshiping is themselves. See, it's remarkable how often religious activity is camouflaged for self-absorption. It's remarkable how often religious activity is camouflaged for self-importance. It's, all, it's, it's amazing how often, how often throughout the history of Israel, throughout the history of the church, throughout the history of our lives, how often we take religious exercise and we use it to justify our own self-indulgence. See, that's what they were doing. Here they were. And what Amos wants them to recognize is that they're not nearly as sharp as they think they are. They're not nearly as clever or as enlightened as they believe themselves to be. They, they're tolerating Jezebel, but their tolerance is not a virtue. No, they're wanting to be in control of their lives. They're wanting to be in control of their faith. They're wanting to be in control of their values. They're wanting to be in control of the law of God. But by choosing to be in control, they are choosing against grace. And that's what we do. As we try to assert our authority, as we try to, to camouflage and baptize our hypocrisy, as, as we inside the church try to move and become more like those outside the church, what we ultimately do is we choose control over grace. You see, brothers and sisters, grace and control cannot coexist. Either you need God to do it all or you can do it yourself. It can't be both. That's why Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 says that if you want to be saved, you, your salvation must be preceded by faith in which you cede control of your life, in which you cede control of the direction of your life, and the future of your life, and the values of your life unto Christ alone that you might be saved by grace through faith. See, that's how we ultimately come to look like the world. We misunderstand grace. You can say that chapter 3, verse 2 is kind of the summary of the whole book of Amos. It's, it's, the, it's the main theme of the book of Amos. He says in verse 1, Hear this word that the Lord has spoken against you, O people of Israel, against the whole family that I brought up out of the land of Egypt. And, and you have to put yourself in the worldview of, of Israel to understand how shocking it would be for them to hear that their covenant God was saying that he was against them. 
He had delivered them. He was on the record as being for them. He had provided for them. He had given them great blessing. In the, as a matter of fact, here they are. Their churches are growing. Their coffers are full. The sanctuaries are full. It appears like God is blessing. And yet in the midst of this prosperity, in the midst of this religious activity, God comes to them and he says, I am speaking against you. Verse 2, you only have I known. Do you hear the heartbreak of God here? You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. You see, what God is saying is that they misunderstood the nature of what their adoption and their salvation by him was. God had chosen Israel that he would set them apart and that they would live on a higher plane as an exhibition of his glory, as an exhibition of his goodness, as an exhibition of his passion. That, he, that they would live on this higher plane, consecrated to the Lord in a way that would draw all the nations to the goodness of God. But they interpreted their adoption by God as in, in the same way that a spoiled child interprets the love of his father. They believed that their adoption by God gave them the free reign to do and go and live however it is that they wanted to do and to live and go and do however they wanted to do with the seal of approval from God himself. That is, they looked up to their heavenly father and they said, my dad will be fine. My dad will let me go where I want to go. My dad will fix whatever it is that I mess up. My dad will never raise his hand in discipline against me because my dad has chosen me. My dad has loved me. God says it's the opposite. He says, because I have known only you, because I have chosen you, because I love you, because I care about you, therefore, built upon that, pre that premise, built upon the reality of that adoption, I will raise my hand to you. I will punish you for all of your iniquities. See, they thought, that grace meant that they had the control over their lives to do what they wanted to do and believe what they wanted to believe without having to reap any of the consequences of their decisions. They believed that grace meant that they had a get-out-of-jail-free card with dad and anytime, anytime they went against his law, anytime they did something that he, didn't, he disapproved of, that dad would just turn and look the other way and help get them, bail them out of the mess and make it all right. Again, that is, they understood their adoption as being a free license to sin. When in reality, it was the free ability to have a new life. You see, the reality is, is what God did for us, is God came and he found us and we were broke and destitute living on the street. We were laying in the gutter. And God came and he found us, not because I brought anything to the table, not because I could do anything good for him, not because I brought any particular value, but because he loved me and because he wanted me. And he finds me there laying in the gutter and he takes me out of the gutter and he brings me into his house and he sits me down at his dinner table. And I was starving and now there's plenty and I was abandoned, but now I have a new last name. I was homeless, but now I stay in his house, in his home and sleep in his bed. He has given me a new inheritance. He has given me a new heritage. He has given me a new last name. He has given me a new nature. He has given me a new future. And he has not done that so that I could go back and lay in the gutter again. 
He's not done that so I could go back to the world that had starved me and say, can I live with you some more? He has done that so that I might now live according to my new last name. So that now I might live according to my new nature. That I might be a walking billboard of the grace and the goodness of my Father who rescued me out of the gutter. What a spit in the face it is to be brought in off the street, adopted in the household of God, and then beg him to let you go back to the street. See, Amos' point to Israel, Jesus' point to Thyatira, God's message to us is that we have fundamentally misunderstood our adoption. We have fundamentally failed to appreciate what God has done for us. We have fundamentally misinterpreted and misunderstood grace so that we have sought to take advantage of it. And our taking advantage of others is only because we have begun by taking advantage of the grace of God himself. And so, he says, therefore I will punish you. Therefore I will punish you. You trample grace. You run out into the street. You run out in front of the bus, and what will every good father do? Every good father will shout. You try to drink poison, and every good father will intervene. You try to destroy your life, and every good father will do what it takes to get the attention of his children. And that's exactly, exactly what's happening in the book of Amos. If you look at Amos chapter 4, let's just read a short, short sa- uh, sample on what you see there. This is God talking to Israel. I gave you cleanness of teeth in all your cities. That is, I let you go hungry. There was no food in your teeth and lack of bread in all your places. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld the rain from you when there was yet three months to the harvest. I would send rain on one city and send no rain on another, another city. One field would have rain, and the field on which it did not rain would wither. So two or three cities would wander to another city to drink water and would not be satisfied. Yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. I sent among you a pestilence after the manner of Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword and carried away your horses, and I made the stench of your camp go into your nostrils, yet you did not return to me. I overthrew some of you as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah, and you were as a brand plucked out of the burning, yet you did not return to me. God was doing whatever he could do. God was doing whatever we could experience. God was withholding every blessing that he had given to them, that he might get the attention of his children, that he might get the attention of his people. And yet five times, one, two, three, four, Five times his people see the work of God, receive the discipline of God, receive the punishment of God, and their hearts are hardened toward him. They're obstinate. They're stiff-necked. They keep going in the way. Why? Because they want control, not grace. Not grace. The discipline of God isn't unloving. It's loving. It's grace. It's mercy. He wants the attention of his people. He wants the affection of his people. He wants to rescue his people. He wants to keep his people from running in front of the bus. He wants to keep his children from drinking the poison. He wants to intervene in their lives. It is grace upon grace upon grace, and yet his people continue to say, nope, we'd rather have control. We'd rather do it our way. We'd rather continue going in our path. You see, God is a good father that has chosen us And God will allow us to experience discipline through his intervention. But it is still dependent upon his children to respond to him. 
We have the responsibility to recognize and respond to the discipline of God that we might be right with Him, that we might be rescued from our discipline, that we might be renewed and rejuvenated in our relationship with Him. That is, if we keep going, if we keep pressing on, then what we will ultimately do, we are trampling the grace that God has given to us. We are trampling the kindness and the mercy that He has offered us. And we are, in essence, showing whether or not we are his children. A main theme for the minor prophets, a main theme for uh, Amos, a main theme for Jesus in the seven letters to the seven churches, is that the discipline of God and the judgment of God and the hardship of his people will reveal who are actually his people. Not everyone who is in ethnic Israel is in adopted Israel. And not everyone who gathers in the church is actually the church. Those who hear the warnings of God and receive the discipline of God but continue on in their way, what they show is that they were never adopted to begin with. They they don't know God to himself. But those who receive the discipline of God, those who experience the consequences of God, those who see, they don't wag their fists and say, God, oh, how could you? Instead, they humble themselves before him. They get on their faces in repentance and they turn back. And what Amos is seeking among Israel is a remnant of those who will hear the voice of God, whose hearts will be turned back toward him who will be identified and counted as true Israel what Jesus is doing among Thyatira is the same and what I believe the spirit is doing among us is the same this morning when you look at your life is it different is it markedly different than those who are outside the church is your uh, your standard of living your commitment to Christ your passion for the name of God is it different than those outside the church is your materialism and your relationship with money and ambition is it different than those outside the church is the treatment of your wife and the treatment of your children and the treatment of your husband and the treatment of your subordinates is it superior to those that are outside the church and your treatment of those who you can oppress is it different than those outside of the church you treat the cashier different than outside the church you treat the waitress different than those outside the church go and talk to any restaurant and to ask them what their least favorite day to work is And they'll tell you it's the Sunday and it's the church crowd as soon as they get out. What does that say, church? What does that say? It may say that we're not actually the church. It may say that we don't actually know God because that's how people treat people who don't know him. Oh, this morning. This morning, will you choose grace, not control? Will you choose grace, not control? You see, just like Israel here, just like we were long ago, we, we need to be raised up. We must be raised up. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1 says that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. That is, we're born and we're dead, we're corpses. We're physically alive, but we're spiritually dead. And we grow up and what do we try to do? We do anything we can to feel alive. We run to sex and relationships, we run to popularity, and we just want to feel alive. We run to ambition and success and achievement because we just want to feel alive. We try to get better vacations and nicer homes and better cars because we just want to feel alive. We want to feel something, and it lasts for a bit. We run to drugs and to alcohol, and we try to self-medicate ourselves because we just want to feel alive. We just want to dull and numb the emptiness that's inside of us. But then when we meet Christ, 
When we meet Christ, we who once were children of wrath, but God, but God intervenes in our life and he gives us, he raises us in the resurrection of Christ that we might now walk in newness of life with him as John so beautifully and eloquently stated from the baptistry. That we are raised out of those waters to walk with a new nature in the spirit of God, in the power of God, to the glory of God. That is, we're not dead anymore, y'all. We're not dead anymore. We don't need what the world has. We, we, we don't need to run to sex and relationships. We have Christ. We, we don't need to run to ambition and materialism. We have Christ. We don't need to run to self-medicating. We have Christ. We don't need to run to popularity and prominence. We don't need to run to the success of our motherhood and the eyes of the other. We have Christ. We have Christ. But when, when, like Israel, we begin to look at our neighbors and get jealous, when, like Israel, we begin to look at our neighbors and envy what they have and want what they have and long for what they have, even though we have Christ, God will allow us to taste the flavor of death once more. We may not know it fully, but he'll allow us to taste that that sense of death, that sense of despair, that sense of dismay that we once knew when we were homeless laying in the gutter. So he's coming against Israel. And God, quite frankly, is going to flatten Israel. He's going to flatten Israel so there will never again be a northern kingdom. Oh, but there will one day be another Israel. Listen to the later part of the message. Remember, now and later. Now is judgment. Now is the discipline of God. Now are the hard words of God. But later a restoration is coming. Later a redemption is coming. Later a renewal is coming. There is hope. This is found in Amos chapter 9. In that day. Remember we said that is, I'm so sorry about that. That is indicative of the day of the Lord. That day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name declares the Lord who does this. Behold the days are coming declares the Lord when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land that I have given to them. What does he say? He says, I'm going to raise them up. Well, for all of us who know Christ, what is that? Friends, that is resurrection language, isn't it? That is resurrection language. That God is going to come against his people and God is going to allow his people to taste the hardness of his discipline. And they are going to be brought to ruins and they are going to be flattened. But they will not stay there because, because David is coming back. The son of David is going to come. And he's going to assemble from the ashes, from the brokenness, from the ruins, a greater and a newer Israel. The judgment that is owed to them will be fallen upon the son of David. And he too, he's going to be raised up. He's going to be resurrected. And when he returns, when he returns, guess what's going to happen? The days are coming when the plowman shall overcome the reaper. The treader of grape sows the seeds. The mountain shall drip sweet wine. In other words, why were they unjust? Why were they wanting what the neighbors had? They wanted to be rich. What are they going to be when Christ comes? What are they going to be when the Lord is finished? They're going to be rich. They're still going to be reaping the crops when it's time to plant it again. There's going to be so much bounty. Keeps going. Not only that, why is it that they wanted uh, what their neighbors had? They wanted security. 
They wanted security. This is a great need for humanity. He says, I will restore the fortunes of my people, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. They shall make gardens. They're going to enjoy right, right now. They can't fully enjoy. Verse 15, I will plant them on their land, and they shall never again be taken up. You read the Old Testament, and always it's the land. Always it's the land. The land is here, and the land is there. The land is theirs, and the land is not. They're in the land. They're exiled out of the land. They enjoy the land. They're cursing the land. It's always the land. It's insecure. It's not lasting, except one day Christ is going to return, and there's going to be a greater Israel that's going to be assembled from among the nations that ruins that are going to be raised up as Christ has been raised up, and then they're going to be brought into a new heavens and a new earth, and you will not be plugged from it. There will be security. You see, they can't run into all the other gods for what God had already promised to them. And we keep running into the world for what God has already promised to us in Christ. Brothers and sisters, by faith, you can trust God. By faith, you can trust Christ. You don't have to go try to be rich. You're going to be rich. You don't have to go and try to find security. You're going to be secure. You don't have to try to go and find achievement. You're going to be exalted in the house of the Lord forever. Today, you can rest. You can rejoice. You can just enjoy what God has given you in the here and now to the praise of his name in faith that one day this is just the first fruits of what is to come. Oh, brothers and sisters, let's not look to our neighbors Let's not look to all the other kids at school. Let's not look at all the other people we work with. Let's not look at all the other toys and the attainments that they have. Let's look on a higher plane. Let's look to Christ. Let's look to Christ who has raised us up. Let me pray for us this morning. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.